technological advances and how they have affected our lives. Technology has really come a long way. I was comparing what kind of technology I had available to me when I started preaching over 30 years ago. I had a a portable typewriter, manual at that. It wasn't even electric. A portable typewriter. And the church where I began preaching had a mimeograph machine. Some of you older folks will remember mimeograph. The young folks won't even know what we're talking about. You had to, you had to type your master on a stencil. If you made a mistake, oh man, you had to do some, some horrible kinds of correction. But uh, you had to type on a stencil, then put this thing over this drum filled with ink and then cranked through the papers, and it's a mess. It was just a mess. It was awful. But that was, that was the extent of the technology that was available just not that long ago. Now we think about all the things that are available, computers and projectors and laser printers and uh, the Internet and all kinds of things that are just incredible, of course, that have come along technologically, even to affect something like preaching the gospel. Technology has affected Saying all that to say, men are fairly inventive creatures. We invent lots of things. And just think about all the advancements. Think of all the luxuries and conveniences that we enjoy today that would have been unknown of to just our parents and grandparents just not that many years before. So, again, men have invented lots of things. Men are inventive creatures, is my point. We use that inventiveness also, that cleverness, in a way that is not beneficial, and that is we use that inventiveness to try to come up with ways to excuse our wrongdoings. We try to invent excuses. We try to invent some sort of an argument to say, well, maybe I didn't do what I should have done, but I'll get away with it. It won't be discovered. It won't be known. I won't be punished for it. We've used this kind of clever inventiveness in a very detrimental way to try to cover sin. In our lesson this morning, what we want to talk about is covering sin. And we especially want to deal with some of the flawed techniques that men have come up with to try and excuse themselves for the things that they have done which are wrong. Whenever these kind of efforts are pursued, of course, they are always uh, an ultimate failure. They never succeed. We can't hide our sins, but men will try. We want to talk about some of the ways they do that in our lesson this morning. Our purpose, of course, will be to say... Don't try that. It doesn't work. You're not going to succeed at doing that. You can't hide your sins. You can't cover them in these flawed ways. Thanks for being here this morning. We're so grateful for everyone who's here. We have visitors, and we're glad for our visitors. and hope you'll come back whenever you can. We're glad for visitors because a number of our own folks are away this morning. And so we're especially grateful for all who are visiting. Thanks for coming. Come back whenever you can. As we study this morning, please do this. Check the scriptures that we're using and make sure they're being used accurately. If there's any, if there's any problem with that, please say so. If you have a, a question or even a disagreement, please bring that to my attention so we can clear that up. We believe that we're supposed to understand the Bible, and if we understand it, then we'll understand it alike and be in agreement. So if you have any questions, please bring that to my attention. Thanks to everyone for being here this morning. Let's talk about some of the attempts that men use to cover their sins. And the first one that we might mention is an ancient one, and that is by trying to hide them, to try to suggest that maybe someone won't find out. We can hide our sins from God and man. 
number of years ago when we were living in East Tennessee, there was a bad snow and ice storm that hit over the weekend. And on Sunday when we gathered for worship, the parking lot was really very icy. Uh, and as and and the and actually the parking lot was sort of on a slope there, as you can imagine, almost everything in East Tennessee is built on the side of a hill. As we were walking out to the car, Cindy was latched onto my arm uh, for support, and she started going down, and we both ended up just sprawled out in the middle of the parking lot. You know what the first thing we did when we hit the ground and got ourselves back up? We looked around to see if anybody saw us. We were we weren't so worried about any potential injury as we were the embarrassment. We want to make sure nobody caught us in that uh, uh, sort of awkward uh, event of falling down. Uh, the, the idea is, well, it's not so bad if nobody saw us. Well, unfortunately, people think about their sins that way, you know. If nobody saw me do it, then maybe it's not a big deal. If nobody saw me do it, maybe it's not even a sin. If I can keep it hidden and nobody finds out about it, it's not a problem. That's wrong, of course, right? That's very wrong. Very simple but powerful statement in Numbers 32, verse 23 is, be sure your sin will find you out. It's not going to be hidden ultimately, right? When you sin, it's going to be known. We'll talk here in a minute about the fact that God knows all sins. But, of course, if I sin, I know that I sin. And in the vast majority of cases, when I sin, somebody else will find out about it. It's not going to be a hidden thing. Be sure your sin will find you out. As we said, God knows all of our sins, and none of them are hidden from Him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You're not hiding it from God. And so the very idea that you might be able to cover your sins by simply keeping them a secret so that no one discovers, you can give up on that right now. That's not going to work. That's a flawed effort to cover sin. Another thing that men have tried, they've been trying this for ages, is to blame someone else for it. This is a pretty childish trait if you stop and think about it. When you get some little kids together, I mean little kids together, and something happens, maybe something bad happens, something gets broken or a fight breaks out or they quarrel or have some sort of a fuss, and you try to correct them, what's one of the things that even a little child will try to do? But they begin. To, they actually learn quickly to point the finger blame. He did it, or he started it, or it was him first. We're very quick. We learn it early in life to try to blame someone else. Now, this goes way back, too. In fact, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the familiar episode there in Genesis chapter 3, beginning verse 11, when God asked Adam and Eve, hast thou, specifically asking Adam here, hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Well, obviously he had. There's no, there's no denying that he had, so what does he do? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So notice, Adam's response was to point a finger of blame at Eve as her fault. She, she made me do it. And then when God questioned Eve, she tried to point the finger of blame at the devil. Eve here is the first one who ever came up with that idea. The devil made me do it. She tried to point the finger of blame at Satan. But of course, it simply did not work. It never has worked to try to blame someone else. We are personally accountable for our wrongs. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. And so, again, if you are inclined to think, I'll be excused because of what someone else did, if I can pass some element of blame to someone else, even though I might not have done what's right, if I can claim it was because of what someone else did, that's okay? No, that's not okay. Uh, that's, again, a flawed effort at covering sin. Of course, another thing that happens is that men just try to deny their sins. This is very simple. Just deny that it happened at all, right? <clears throat> How often does this happen in courtrooms across our land? The, uh, a man will be arrested for a crime. And they basically have him just dead to rights. I mean, he, this guy is guilty. All the evidence points to his guilt. And so when he stands before the judge to, to make his pleading in the case, what does he say? Not guilty. Not, get, not guilty. Are you kidding me? We know that you're, we know this guy did it. The sad thing in our justice system these days is that some of those guys will plead not guilty, the things that they obviously did, and they'll get away with it. But that's not going to happen in God's court of justice. It's not going to be possible for you to say, I didn't do it, when in fact you did do it, because God knows, and that excuse will not work. You cannot deny your sins before God. The classic Bible case of a fellow who tried to deny that he'd even done anything wrong was that of King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul had been told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, remember? But when he came back, he came back bringing some spoil from the battle. They were victorious in the battle, but they didn't just completely destroy everything as they had been told. King Saul, of course, specifically instructed, bring back no spoil. They brought back spoils. And so Samuel went out to meet him, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be thou, the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You see what he's basically saying? He's denying wrongdoing. He's saying, I, I did everything, I did it right. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Samuel said, Oh, really? You, you did everything you were supposed to do? How's come I'm hearing these animals? So basically, Saul wanted to deny that he'd done anything wrong, and yet the evidence was right there that he had. How often do we do that same thing? We've done wrong, admittedly wrong. It's obviously wrong. But we think we can get by by simply denying wrongdoing? That doesn't work. It doesn't work with our brethren. Our brethren know better. They see things as they really are in most cases. But definitely and perfectly, God sees and knows all that we have done and there's no capability that we could deny wrongdoing in the presence of God. He simply knows. It doesn't work. It won't help. Don't try that method. Another thing that men do to try and cover their sins is to play the hypocrite. Pretend to be righteous. Now, here's, here's the, the way that this would work. If I can fool people into thinking that I'm just a really super religious individual, you know, I'm, I'm very religious, then what I hope is that by claiming to be such a righteous religious individual that I can def deflect any attention away from the things that I'm doing that are not right. I'm doing some stuff that's not right, but what I hope is that I can claim to be such an upright person that people will look away from or ignore the things that I'm doing that's wrong. 
Uh, after all, who could be so bold as to accuse me of sinning? When I've done all these great righteous deeds in my life, well, and then maybe I'll sit down and I'll catalog. Well, I, well, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I've taught Bible classes. I haven't, missed, in fact, I haven't missed a service for the last three years. I haven't even missed for being sick. And I could go, and then I, I start cataloging all my good things. I've, you know, I've done this and I've done that. Well, what's that? What am I trying to do there? I'm trying to claim that because of all these things that I think are so significant. And I think I'm so righteous, you don't even have a right to accuse me of doing anything wrong. And so, by pretending to be righteous, actually being a hypocrite in the, in the process, I try to hide my sin. That won't work either. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus addressed the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, that whole chapter really very specific condemnations of the things they did. But notice this expression that he used. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, ye are likened to whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Do you remember the description of the whited sepulchres? Do you this is really a graphic picture that Jesus paints there. you remember what they did? Under the law of Moses... It made a person ceremonially unclean if they came into contact with a dead body. And so for, uh, for a period of time, you would be unclean, and then you'd have to go through certain rites of purification if you touched a dead body. Sometimes it was unavoidable to touch a dead body, right? I mean, if a family member dies and you have to carry them to the grave, you're going to touch a dead body. But you gotta, and, and when you do, you've got to go through these purifications. Therefore, you don't want to touch a dead body accidentally, unnecessarily, and so, when they buried people, oftentimes they would use caves for burying places. Sometimes they were hand-dug uh, tombs, but often caves. But whatever they were, it was commonplace to whitewash the outside of that burying place. And it was done as a warning signal. Don't go in here unintentionally, because if you do, you're going to be unclean. So they would whitewash the outside of the tombs as a marker, as a warning. Now, when they did that, of course, as Jesus said, it made them look nice on the outside. They were whitewashed and pretty on the outside. But everybody knew that just inside there, there were rotting corpses. It was nasty inside there. Jesus said that these hypocritical scribes and Pharisees were like that. They looked pretty good on the outside. In other words, they had this air of self-righteousness, but they were true hypocrites, and inside their inner man was rotten and corrupted. And so it was clear that... That process wasn't working for them. It wasn't covering their sins when they pretended to be so righteous, when in fact they were hypocrites. That won't work for us either. And we need to know that that is the case. It will not succeed. It's a flawed effort to cover sin. Another way that won't work is by attacking the messenger of truth. This is a common reaction. Uh, uh, it's an unfortunate one, but it's common. Someone tries to come and help you. Um, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're obviously struggling spiritually. Maybe you've been openly involved in certain conduct that a Christian just simply cannot do. And so someone tries to come and help you get past that, to, to deal with that in a right way. But instead of dealing with the issue the way you should, you get mad. And then uh, you uh, lash out at the one who has come to try and help you. 
in that matter. And so what you're doing is you're attacking the messenger, right? Now, that, as I said, that's common but unfortunate. And you've probably known of instances like that. In fact, you may have been on the receiving end of that at some time or another when you were trying to help someone with a problem and they came after you. Well, it's not new. Don't be surprised. It's not new. Again, it never has worked. Remember, here's the, the famous Old Testament episode in which this was done. Remember when Elijah, the prophet, had actually prayed to God and a drought struck the land of Israel because of their wickedness. Ahab was that horrible king at the time. Remember his wife Jezebel. She was as bad or worse than he was. And so because of the wickedness of the people, the prophet Elijah had prayed and a drought had hit the land for three years. Uh, it was about to end, but anyway, Elijah went and confronted Ahab. And it says here, 1 Kings 18, beginning verse 17, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Now wait a minute, who's been troubling Israel here? Of course, it was Ahab and Jezebel and all their sins, right? That's the reason all this trouble was afflicting the nation. But Ahab points the finger at Elijah. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Elijah said, no, you got that wrong, Ahab. It's not me, it's you. You're the one who's caused all this trouble. But do you see how that Ahab attacked the messenger? Probably even a better example is from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, concerning Herod and John the Baptist. Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said to him, it's not lawful for thee to have her. We've studied before this terrible incident in which Herod had actually taken his brother's wife and married her. And John the Baptist was preaching the truth when he said, that's wrong, that's sinful, it's not right for you to have your brother Philip's wife. How did Herod react to that? Herod said, oh, well, uh, uh, thanks for bringing that to my attention and I'll correct that matter immediately. No. Instead, he took John and threw him in prison. And of course, you know the outcome of this was, although Herod didn't really want to do it, the outcome of it was he ended up having John beheaded. He killed the messenger in this process. Too often, that happens when... People try to help others get past certain sinful situations in their life. They don't like it. They won't repent. They won't make it right. Instead, they attack the messenger. That's common, but it's wrong. Uh, but it happens way too often. Another flawed way that people try to come at the business of sin. They're trying to cover their sin. They're trying to keep it from being considered significant. And that is that they think that if it was a long time ago, if enough time has passed by, by the passing of time, uh, people will sort of forget. It'll fade in memory. It won't be that important. It seems a lot of people think this way. And if you maybe have thought that, I, di I did this, and I never really have made it right, but it was a long time ago. Well, how long does it take before a sin becomes not a sin? Have you got a, have you got a handle on that? I'm just asking you, if you think that you can just wait it out, and that by the passing of time, over a long period of time, it won't be bad anymore, then I, I would like for you to give some instruction to us all as to how long that takes. Is a year enough? Three years? Ten years? 
30 years? How long is it? Because what we need to know is how long is it? Because, of course, I'm asking that sarcastically because you know and I know both that it's not true, right? It doesn't, mean, doesn't matter whether it's been a year or 50 years. The passing of time does not change sin and it doesn't cover the sin and it doesn't make the sin right. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, notice, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. These things are recorded. God has a record of these things. And even after you're dead, the record still stands, right? The dead stood before God. And the books were open. So it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away in a matter of time. Years don't make it right. Sin is still sin. And we are accountable. Do not imagine that simply by forgetting them or by the passage of time, they won't matter anymore. And then let me suggest that some people think that you can cover sin, that sin is not significant, that it doesn't matter if this particular sin has gained what we might refer to as social acceptance. In other words, it's become common. It's the norm. Everybody is doing it. And so since everybody is doing it, therefore it's not a bad thing anymore. This is really a subtle thing. It's very dangerous. And I'm afraid as Christians that we become susceptible to this methodology of covering sin. We know the world is getting more and more wicked, rapidly so. Uh, you, you might say, using a mathematical term, exponentially so. The wickedness increases and increases faster and faster. The world is wicked. What happens, unfortunately, is that Christians follow that trend. Now, they're not out at the leading edge of that move toward more wickedness and corruption. They're not out at that leading edge of immorality and ungodliness, but they're allowing the norms of society to drag us along so that we see things like the world sees and rather than seeing them like God sees them. And so if something gains social acceptance, maybe, maybe a good example of this uh, and how Christians are affected by it is by uh, the kind of clothes that we wear. Now, we understand that styles change. That's obvious, right? Styles change over time. But what's modest and not modest uh, doesn't change. Modesty doesn't change. Style changes. Modesty doesn't change. And yet, we see Christians, even Christians, being influenced by the immodest fashions of the modern age. And so... The, the, the thinking, it may even be subconsciously, you imagine, that well, everybody's doing it, it must be okay. No, it doesn't make it okay just because everybody is doing it. In, in Exodus 23, verse 2, it says very simply, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. If the multitude is going that way, don't follow them. Don't follow the crowd. The crowd doesn't make it right. Jesus said famously in Matthew 7, beginning verse 13, Enter ye in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. What did Jesus say about the majority? Jesus said the majority's wrong. The minority is right. And so, if you're making your argument, if you're trying to cover your sin by saying, well, everybody's doing it, Jesus would say, yeah, Everybody's doing it, and everybody's on their way to eternal destruction. The few will find the path that leads to eternal life. Don't try to cover your sin 
by imagining it's okay if it has become accepted in this immoral culture that we live in. That doesn't solve anything, does it? All right, let us conclude by saying this. There is ultimately only one right way to deal with sin. These ways that we have enumerated this morning don't get the job done. They just uh, None of them work, right? And, and in fact, they're pretty easy to see through. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to say, I can see why that doesn't work, you know? Those, none of, but, but they're so commonly employed, people, even though they're so obviously flawed, people still try to do them. They don't work. There's really only one way to deal with sin. Did you notice in Proverbs 28 where Ricky read earlier, verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. Now, think about it. That's what we've been talking about in our lesson this morning. He that covereth his sins will not prosper. That is, trying to cover them in these flawed methods that we have enumerated this morning. You try to cover your sins in that way, you won't prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's what we've got to do. We've got to confess and forsake our sins. Stop trying to cover them up. Instead, deal with them in the right way so that we can be forgiven. Stand right with God and have that hope of being with Him in eternity. What's your situation this morning? Are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the simple gospel plan of salvation? If not, then you may have imagined that everything is okay. You may, in your mind, have even used one of those kind of thought processes that we described in our lesson this morning. But we've been trying to emphasize again and again, you can't succeed that way. Spiritually, you can't succeed that way. If you're not a Christian, the only way that you can really deal with your sins properly, properly is by obeying that simple gospel plan of salvation. Upon hearing the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for remission of sins. We're ready to assist you. Uh, we're ready to study with you more. We're ready to offer our help to you in any way that you need to get right with God in the true and only proper way. If you're a Christian already, and there's some things that you haven't dealt with in your life, you've kind of pushed them down, tried to cover them up, maybe in your own mind you've tried to stop even thinking about it, know that that doesn't cover the sin. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't, it doesn't succeed in satisfying God's demands and making the situation correct. If you're a Christian and there are sins in your life that you've never dealt with, then you need to repent of those sins, confess them as needed, pray for God's forgiveness. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.